Welcome to Ufahamu Africa, a podcast on life and politics on the African continent. My name is Kim Dion, and I'm your host. Here's what we're reading and learning from the continent this week. My favorite read comes from Monica Mark at BuzzFeed, titled Meet the Badass Women Wrestlers of Senegal. She reports from a cluster of five villages in southern Senegal, the place from which all women wrestlers on Senegal's national team hail. One of my favorite quotes in the piece comes from a 67-year-old great-grandmother who said, wrestling is how we prove our womanhood. These African published a moving story last month of a woman who was taken as a toddler from Rwanda to Italy during the 1994 genocide and later adopted by an Italian family. The woman, Jeanette Ciappello, now in her 20s, recently returned for the first time to her birthplace and reunited with her 74-year-old father and others in her family. The story is a cautionary tale about international adoption, especially during a moment of crisis. Here at Ufahamu Africa, we'd like to do a longer segment on international adoption. So if listeners have any book or interview recommendations, please send us an email or post a comment to our site, ufahamuafrica.com. It looks like the presidential runoff election in Liberia will be postponed. The runoff election between retired footballer George Weah and current vice president Joseph Boakai was supposed to be held on November 7th. The Supreme Court ordered a stay so that it can hear the complaint of a third-place finisher and lawyer, Charles Brumskine, who alleges the first-round October 10th election was marred with polling station irregularities and violations of electoral law and fraud. At the time of recording, it was unclear when the second-round election would be held. Finally, we want to point our listeners to the latest episode of Africa Past and Present, a podcast out of Michigan State University. Host Dr. Peter Alleggi and guest host Dr. Candace Keller interview Yusuf Sakali and Malik Situ about the Digital Archive of Malian Photography, a collaborative project that aims to preserve and digitize collections of five important Malian photographers. The episode raises important questions about ownership and ethics and conservation. If you haven't already, you should also check out the Photo Archive, where low-resolution scans are shared through a Creative Commons license, and high-resolution scans can be accessed through collection custodians. On Monday morning, I'll post links to what we've mentioned here, as well as bonus links to our website, ufamuafrica.com. This week's episode features a conversation with Judd Devermont, the National Intelligence Officer for Africa at the U.S. National Intelligence Council. He is also a lecturer at George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. He has worked and lived in Nigeria, South Africa, and Cote d'Ivoire. He holds a master's degree in African studies from Yale University and a bachelor's degree in history from UCLA. He chats with us today in a personal capacity as a citizen, not as a representative of the U.S. government. So thank you, Judd, for agreeing to be a guest on Ufahamu Africa. You've worked for more than a decade analyzing politics in Africa to help inform U.S. foreign policy. Can you tell us how you came to this career? Is this what you always wanted to be when you grew up? Sure. Well, first, Kim, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, As you know, I'm a big fan, so this is really a treat. Um, I don't think this is what I really wanted to do when I was growing up. I mean, I I quite honestly didn't know this was an option. (laughs) I I was in college and became really interested in... African politics and African history, uh, and thought that the material was really engaging, thought the challenges were important and urgent, and so I I wanted to become an expert. I read as much as I could, I talked to smart people, I traveled, and with the idea that I could ultimately share those insights and help decision makers make informed choices. 
I didn't really understand even at that earlier stage what the difference between policy and this was, but you know, analysis is really an important, critical job. I mean, it's about delivering dispassionate, objective insights so that policymakers can make uh, can make their decisions. Your your whole job is to be really policy agnostic to lay out what is happening uh, in a specific country or in a specific issue, perhaps use your uh, critical thinking, forecast what may happen, and then that should hopefully facilitate uh, a conversation and then decisions. And I've been doing it, as you said, for a decade now, and it really is, you know, every day is, is, is exciting, and I feel really privileged to be able to have a job where I really just read, think, write, write brief, and then share those insights. Right. So it's, it's, it's great that you bring up the, the writing part of it. Cause actually I wanted to have you on the podcast so that we could talk about your latest publication. It's an article in the academic journal, African affairs entitled the U S intelligence communities biases during the Nigerian civil war. Now, for those who haven't yet had a chance to read your article, can you share, you know, how you went about doing this research? So what, archival materials did you rely on to write up your research? And how is it that you came to write this article now? So when I am trying to think through a problem uh, and I get stuck, I go to the history books. That's my go-to move. And um, I was trying to think through a couple of problems and I was reading the uh, State Department relations of the United States. It's a collection. It's, it's essentially the official diplomatic history of the U.S. government. And it's a collection of declassified memos and assessments. And I I came upon this assessment from 1968, from January of 1968, called uh, The Outlook for Nigeria. And I was really taken by it. And if you don't mind, I'll just kind of read the first lines because I think they're, it's really important. They said in it, we believe that no matter what the military outcome, the protracted civil war and the political upheavals which preceded it have already considerably damaged Nigeria's post-war prospects. It's difficult to imagine, or excuse me, it's difficult to see how a bitterly resentful and widely hated Igbo people could be reabsorbed into Nigeria's polity and society. Moreover, we see no national leadership in sight, military or civilian, which would be capable of assuaging intergroup antagonisms and gaining the popular support needed to carry out the complicated tasks of political, economic, and social construction. And I, so I read this piece, it's January 1968. The war has been going on for six months. It's got 24 months to go. And I was really floored by how strong this judgment was. And I wanted to know, you know what, what were they drawing on to make that conclusion? You know, what, was, what were their influences? Think about the problem set. You know, was this piece a standalone or was it part of a, a larger, what we would call uh, analytic arc or story arc? And so a couple of years went by and this piece is rattling in my head. I thought about that we were at the 50th anniversary of Nigerian Civil War, and I said I was going to you know, really try to get into it. So I found 300 uh, declassified intelligence assessments on the Nigerian Civil War in the immediate uh, year that led into it. I would benefit from a, the release of the Nixon presidential daily brief. So these are the, the analytic assessments that were given to President Nixon. And so they were just released in the end of 2015. And so with that what was already publicly available. And then I augmented it with newspaper clippings, uh, memoirs by policymakers and diplomats, U.S. and U.K. And I was able to dig through this really incredible online archive 
call of the sort of oral testimony of former diplomats and USAID officers. And I was able to put all of that together and really come up with a story of personal bias and I think what, what I would call poor analytic tradecraft that led to a couple of, of faulty assumptions and faulty assessments about the war, um, its trajectory, and then the outcome. So your article was published at, you know, in line with this 50th anniversary of the conflict, but at the same time that it was published, we're seeing a resurgence in the Biafra separatist movement. In September, for example, 60 supporters of the Biafra separatist movement were arrested following intense protests led by activists from a group uh, known as the Indigenous People of Biafra. So can we draw any parallels between your research about the earlier movement for secession and today's movement? Yeah, I think we should start again with that statement that they thought it was so difficult to reabsorb the Igbos into I think there's some problems with that. At the end of the war, uh, the head of state, Yakubo Gowan, had this policy of no victor, no vanquish. Uh, there was reconciliation. There was some... Uh, reconstruction efforts. I mean, even the analysts were sort of surprised at how uh, the turn happened so quickly. They were calling Gowan a national hero within a year. Um, so I think that there were some problems in that assessment, but there is a truth there that the idea of Biafra remains really potent in Nigeria and in the Southeast. Uh, the leader of uh, the indigenous people of Biafra, uh, Namdi Kanu, he was born in 67. He was born the year of the war probably has very faint memories of it. And I know, I know that you uh, like, as I like, um, Half of the Yellow Sun. Yeah. Uh, she was born 10 years after. So this story about Biafra has been passed on by generations. I think, I think this movement has, has gained a lot more of a profile, but there are really these significant differences. The reasons that the Igbos declared secession in 1967 was a real fear that they didn't have a place in Nigeria anymore. There were these very uh, violent anti-Ibo riots in May of 66 and September of 66, and then a year-long period where they could not negotiate some sort of federal arrangement where Ibos and the Southeast would feel safe, and so they ultimately reached this conclusion that that was the only uh, answer. Whereas I think in today, while Ibos are integrated, there are you know significant Ibo politicians, Ibos are... Uh, very prominent in the business sector. So I think that those are written in distinct differences, the two, the two moments. So in your article, you draw a parallel between how Nigeria's civil war half a century ago affected policymakers' judgments to the way the devastation wrought by Boko Haram today, particularly the abduction of schoolgirls from Chibok, will challenge the way the American public and American analysts will understand the threat posed by Boko Haram. Now, I think this makes the takeaways from your article about a historical event even more salient, right? Even thinking about the contemporary moment. So I wonder what are the main lessons we learn from your research that are broadly applicable to intelligence analysis for contemporary events in Africa and really elsewhere in the world? Yeah, so there were a couple of really significant problems, what I would call portray craft in the way that they looked at this event that I think, again, as you said, has these implications for anyone who's trying to uh, assess current affairs and current events. The analysts and Americans, really, uh, journalists, activists, really identified with the Igbos. So this is what I would call mirror imaging. They related to 
the EVOs. Uh, they called them modernizing and independent, and, and they felt a kinship to uh, the the story of the Igbo population. They related to the the leader of the Nigeria of the Biafrans, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ojuku. He was you know very charismatic, and so on the other hand, and though the, the way they characterized the the, the Northerners uh, and the federal government was backwards or conservative or feudal. They saw the leader of the, the Nigerian government side go on as, as sort of quiet and ineffectual and ineffective. And so I think from the beginning, as they analyzed the events, there, there was sort of this subtle preference for the Biafrans because there was this identification. And that led to a second problem, which is confirmation bias. So as events went on, for anything that Biafrans would do uh, was given, you know, uh, uh, three cheers. And when they would lose, it was characterized as a setback or only grudgingly given ground. And so they were setting themselves up to interpret each of these events uh, in, in favor of the Biafrans as opposed to the Nigerians. Despite, as the war went on, the Biafrans had a very small piece of territory, and yet still the analysts were saying, well, there's not a strategic... Uh, advantage that the Nigerians. The third problem that they had was that they, uh, per, it was linear thinking the way that they looked at it. So they saw the violence before the war and during the war, and so they assumed that when the war concluded, there would be, as they said, another bloodshed. And as I said earlier in the interview, they thought that no leader could come out after this and lead Nigeria again. And that's because in all of these cases, they really didn't set themselves up to think about these problems in a structured way. You, you don't get the sense in the assessments that they identified what the key drivers are, what the key factors are, what are potentials for discontinuities, what would have to change that would have a different outcome. If you don't do that today or when you're looking at a problem, you do set yourself up with these perceptual and cognitive biases that it's really difficult to navigate. And I think ultimately it leads to, to one providing analysis that really reflects a little bit of your own personal views rather than an objective, dispassionate, um, unbiased. It's, it's human to do that, but you need to use these structural ways of thinking to, to overcome them. So I also want to raise the important question about how things are different today. So during the Nigerian Civil War, Americans had Life magazine informing them about the devastation that Southerners were navigating. But today, there's arguably more access to information, right, through social media and citizen journalism. How does that complicate or change the already difficult circumstances for analysts who are trying to make sense of security issues? That's a really good question, and I, I don't think I know all the answers yet. Uh, this is something that I hope that, like, maybe some psychologists or people who focus on um, mass marketing can help us think through. Because if you think about in in 1967, in that in the Biafran War, some people have called it America's first African war. Right. The the pictures of the Biafran uh, civilians who were you know with the large bellies who were suffering from malnutrition. I mean that captured everyone's imagination. Jimi Hendrix, John Baez were out there on the streets raising money uh, for the Biafrans. President Nixon was on the campaign trail talking about Biafra. So this was a, a conversation at a dinner table, and that means that an analyst is immersed in it. They're talking about it at work for their professional life, but they're also hearing it from their, their family and their friends. And so I, it's really hard to figure out 
how challenging that must be, or to think about how challenging that must be when you have to do analysis. In today's contemporary world, yes, we have the Chabot girls and we'll have Ebola, but they're not as sort of sustained and sort of all-encompassing of a challenge set. Right. No, that would make sense because, you know, about, back when Life Magazine was around, well, there were three major, you know, uh, news stations that Americans could watch, whereas now people can tune into whatever news they want. So it is it is really different in that, you know, we are a bit more segmented in our news consumption. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that's the challenge that they, they probably face. For us, working in a, a world with social media, the experience is probably more visceral. It is more visceral. You can watch these videos on YouTube. You can you can see uh, the people that you're trying to understand why they're making decisions. You can see the devastation, as we talked about. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got social media. If you probably follow, like I do, many, many people on Twitter, and if they're covering an event and retweeting an event, it can be really distorting. If they're talking about an election, hundreds and hundreds of tweets or maybe talking about the same episode or same incident just from a different point of view. It's a really distorting um, way to try to, to make sense of what's ha happening. And so I go back to my earlier point. You have to figure out a way to do this in a structured way so that you're uh, really trying to guard against uh, any of these biases and you're, you have a really clear way of thinking the problem. Otherwise, it's going to be a lot of noise. It's going to be very difficult to process. Yeah, no doubt. So I want to ask you a question that was originally articulated by uh, my friend and colleague, Zachariah Monpilly, who is a political scientist at Vassar College. He and I co-led a workshop about decolonizing African studies in the spring. And throughout that workshop, we were we were raising questions about, you know, how we go about our own work. And, and he actually articulated six questions uh, and in the second half of this first season of Ufamu Africa, we're asking our guests to answer, you know, one of those questions. And so I want to I want to ask you one, and that is, who is the audience, real or imagined, for our intellectual work? Well, it's a it's easy for me to answer this in some sense. So when I write in my professional life, my audience is a, a policymaker, mm -hmm. but I also think indirectly. I'm writing for other analysts. I'm writing for myself so I can think through these problems. I mean, putting pen to paper helps you kind of think through it. Um, and so there's the policymaker. There's myself as I try to get my head around an issue. There's other analysts who may benefit from uh, the work that I'm producing and help inform what they're doing. Project I did for African Affairs uh, hit home that I'm also writing for the history books. I'm also writing because someday everything that I have written will be declassified and will be shared. And, um, you know, so I'm also, it keeps, I think it keeps you on task to write unbiased pieces. Ultimately, um, it is going to be out there and you want to make sure that you sort of did your job to the, the highest standards of the profession. What I think some of the people who are often on this podcast uh, write to, if I could just add, I read all of their work. So I don't know how, how many times an academic thinks about, sometimes explicitly so, but history books, anthropology, I mean, I, a good analyst is trying to absorb uh, the topic from all sorts of points. And so I, I think that uh, perhaps sometimes people don't think how much their work really affects uh, how we uh, professional analysts try to think about and understand really complex problems. That's great to know that folks who are doing the, the pragmatic work of policymaking, right, or policy informing, are, uh, are, are reading academics work. So before we go, uh, we normally ask our guests about books they're reading right now, or maybe even something you've read recently. Is there a recommendation you might have for our listeners? Yeah, I ha actually have um, 
a book that I'm reading right now, I'm about 80 pages into it, and it's not about Africa, and I really like it. It's called When Crime Pays, uh, Money and Muscle in Indian Politics by uh, Milan Vashnav. And it's the questions he explores is, why do criminals get into politics? Why do people vote for criminals? Why do political parties you know, accept criminals and put them on their platforms? And I, I don't know the answers yet to that, because I'm still only uh, about 180 pages in, 100 pages in, but it, it's really interesting, very applicable to lots of um, circumstances uh, in Sub-Saharan Africa. The other book that I, I read earlier this year, it's older, but it's been really helpful for me to think through the Angolan uh, election, is uh, Magnificent Beggar Land by Ricardo Suarez de Olivero. It's really readable. It gives you a sense of, of what Angola uh, has been like post the Civil War and uh, insights into the MPLA that I find I found really invaluable ahead of the election and as we think about uh, what a post-Dos Angola looks like. Fascinating. Well, thanks so much for those recommendations. Thank you for having me. That's all for this week. Find us online and tell us what you're reading and learning about the continent. You can listen to Ufamu Africa on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or on our website, ufamuafrica.com. Find us on Twitter at Ufahamu Africa. Ufahamu Africa is a production of Smith College, sponsored by the Government Department and the Committee on Faculty Compensation and Development. Kawia Aruna, Class of 2021, is Ufahamu Africa's Research and Production Assistant. Technical assistance is provided by the Center for Media Production, and music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening. Until next week, Safiri Salama.